The Bible reading for this morning comes from the book of 1 John, the first chapter of that book. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. When I was uh, engaged to be married, I um, was out to dinner with my friend Tim, and we were in Brunswick Street, and um, I was feeling kind of a little bit nervous about the whole thing, um, just like, oh, getting married is such a big deal. And I said, you know, how do I know that, you know, that I'm doing the right thing here, that I'm committing to this one person for the rest of my life? You know, maybe I'm making a mistake or something, you know. I mean, it doesn't feel wrong now, but but then maybe in a year's time it'll be wrong. And, you know, I was just being all kind of worried and stuff. And anyway, you know, in, in terms of this issue of the, the the question of choosing the one person for the rest of your life, he said to me, it's a little bit like, you know that scene in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the 1970s one? Hands up if you've seen it. Good, much better than the last time I asked you about a movie. That's good. Um, and he said, you know that scene where um, they're, they're all about to enter into the chocolate factory and they're walking down the corridor and it gets into a smaller and narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower and there's a little door with a little organ and then he plays the, you know, Marriage of Figaro. You know, you know, to enter. So you think, that you think they're about to go into this little door, into a little room. They open the little door and they walk through and on the other side is this enormous chocolate factory filled with, you know, running hot chocolate and furniture that you can eat and, like, flowers that are actually lollipops. And he said, that's a bit, a bit like what it's like to get married to that one person, you, you narrow down to one choice, but on the other side, there's this whole, you know, beauty of um, richness um, in that commitment. That's the beauty and mystery of the covenant of marriage, he said. So as a result in our wedding, we actually showed that scene from the movie and handed out chocolates in the wedding. Anyway, and I've recently realised that this is a bit of a metaphor also for the Christian faith more generally. People generally don't like to hand over control about anything, especially when it comes to their beliefs and convictions. And we all say we believe in one thing or the other, the kind of politics we follow or the moral code that we have or our attitude to money, relationships and work and stuff, our views on science. But we say it's our choice and 
we do it on our terms. But when a person becomes a Christian or is a Christian, there is a process that that person goes through that if they are a modern Western person often makes them nervous. It's a process of saying, how do I know this is right? How do I know that Jesus is the one? And what is involved in becoming a Christian, one of the things is a humility, a, a, a submission to this belief. It's saying, I, I don't really fully understand it all, but I'm going to give my life to Jesus and I'm going to spend the rest of my life working out what that means. And while it feels like a narrow door to go through, on the other side you discover a rich and beautiful and life-giving world where you connect with God himself, where you are able to hear the voice of God. Saint Gregory the Great, which I'm sure you all know who he is, he was a pope, and uh, John Calvin said the last of the great popes. He's the patron saint of music and also actually probably more importantly, he led a, the, the first big mission to the Anglo-Saxons in England and wrote lots of important theology. He wrote this quote, which has been attributed to millions of people, but we're pretty sure that he's the one who said it first, which is, Scripture is like a river, again, broad and deep, shallow enough here for the lamb to go wading, but deep enough there for the elephant to swim. Shallow enough here for the lamb to go wading, but deep enough there for the elephant to swim. And this is the way I think about Christian doctrine generally. The beliefs that uh, Christians subscribe to can be understood by the smallest of children. We believe in one God. We believe in his son, Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit, as we've just been singing. We believe in the church. Little children can, be, can understand what they, that means at a, a, at a child's level. But then if you start scratching at those and digging at those statements, you have this huge well that you can go down and explore that's really deep. Well, how do we know as Christians what to believe? Well, the first answer you'd probably say to me if I was to ask you in a quiz is, we've got the Bible. But the Bible is really, really long, isn't it? And not everything in the Bible is straightforward. It's not all neat and tidy, is it? So how do you know, using Pope Gregory's metaphor, if you're in the right river or if you're swimming aimlessly in the wrong lake? Well, right from the start of the early church in the first century, the apostles um, who Jesus appointed and the teachers... And those leading churches started coming up with what we call the creeds. People worked together, sitting under the leadership of the church, using the teaching of Jesus, using the Hebrew scriptures, using the letters from the apostles. These were statements of faith, read aloud by the church. They provided a clear statement about what they believe. And this was a thing that the Israelites had been doing. So there are creeds like what the Israelites say, like, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Lo love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 to 5. That is a kind of a creed. This was Israel's creed that says, We're not pagans who believe in lots of gods. We believe in the one true God. Our faith is about love. That's what all this says in this creed. And this was a creed affirmed by Jesus and Paul in, in the New Testament. So the early church kind of had this model of creeds. 
and they started saying their own creeds like, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again, which is in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14, or he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification, from Romans 4, 25, or Revelation 2, verse 8. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. These kinds of creeds point to Jesus' death and his resurrection and they show how central that is to the Christians. And it gets used in liturgy and prophecy in the New Testament and in theological argument, in hymns. There's a famous creed in Philippians 2, you might remember. Um, Here's a longer creed from 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. People in the early church didn't have Bibles. They couldn't just Google the answer when they were thinking, what do we believe as Christians again? Hang on. They couldn't do that. They, they, they might, if they're lucky, have a bit of an excerpt of a letter uh, from an apostle and they, they had the Hebrew scriptures, but they didn't necessarily have one that they could take home or listen to on their podcast, you know. Um, so what did they have? They had, to have? they had an oral tradition. And so the creeds were really helpful for this oral tradition. They learnt by rote how to memorise these, these statements. They couldn't just go to Kurong and buy a commentary, you know. So when we say the creeds to this day, because we do in Mary Creek, say creeds, we are joining in with the church throughout the ages in carrying on this oral tradition I grew up saying um, various creeds in the Anglican Church growing up from childhood. Probably the Nicene Creed is the one that we used a lot the most when I was growing up. And I can just say it. If you ask me to say it now, I probably get stuck on the first word. And then as soon as you tell me the first sentence, I'll be able to say the rest. You know, I learned it by rote. This is something we've been taught to do. Paul, Paul tells the church in Thessalonica that they should stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word or by mouth or by letter. Jesus tells the church in Sardis to remember what you have received and heard. So Christianity is like a listening faith. And this oral tradition formed the basis for the, the creeds that got formed by the early church, the big creeds. When I was doing my arts degree in the 90s, they used to have these, they probably still have them, these comic books in the Melbourne Uni bookshop that were like, you know, postmodern, a comic book, or post-colonialism, post, uh, a comic book, or Foucault, a comic book. And the idea is you could read the comic book and get the, the ba- basic ideas. And what we all used to do is when we had essay time, we'd go, oh, I have no idea what Derrida is on about. Hang on, I'll get the comic book and read it quickly. And then you'd go back to the complex Derrida books and then you'd have a, you could sort of tell if you were on track. And the creeds became, started to function kind of like this. You'd, be, you'd hear about the scriptures or you'd hear, hear the scriptures taught or later on in, in, as time went on, Bibles... Um, started to be read in church more um, when, when the canon of the, of the Bible was put together. And if you weren't sure what to believe, you could use the creed as a kind of a, like a, a dummies for Christianity, you know, Christianity for dummies, you know, like, quick, what are we on about again? Oh, that's right, one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, Jesus who died, uh, came, came, was born, yes, died and rose again and ascended. You can use it kind of like that, Christianity for dummies. 
The Creed does this for us Christians. So in the Anglican prayer book, often the Creed is read directly after the sermon. And the point of that is, one of the reasons, is if you have no idea what the preacher just said, because he's just completely all over the shop, and he's missed the point himself, then you can just go, well, at least we can say the Creed, and all agree on that. Graham's having a good laugh here in the front row here. Mike Bird uh, writes in his book on the Apostles' Creed um, that, that the creeds give us the story, unity, coherence and major themes of the Christian faith. So if you go outside of these creeds, then you are dispensing with the basic building blocks of Christianity and you do it at your own risk. There are four major creeds that kind of are still around to this day that are used, are really, really two that are used the most. The first one is the Apostles' Creed, which formed around 200 AD, and that's what we're going to be the focus of our sermon series. And it's the one that probably Mary Creek reads out the most, probably written in Rome as a statement of faith for new converts at their baptism. And it's common across the major churches of the world, the Apostles' Creed. So if you are a Christian who disagrees with the Apostles' Creed, then you need to think twice because basically it means you think you know better than the major Christian denominations of the world for the last 1,800 years. To say that you disagree with the Apostles' Creed is like saying, you know, you don't really believe in something that's just been subscribed to by literally billions of people. Now, if you said to me, well, I've been a biblical scholar for 30 years, a church historian and a systematic theologian, and after looking at the Apostles' Creed closely, there's something I disagree with and I want to question it. I might listen to you. I'll probably still disagree with you, but I'll still listen to you. But just, just to say on a vibe that something in the Apostles' Creed you disagree with as a Christian, that takes you right out of the boundaries of kind of normality for, for Christianity. There's a Nicene Creed, as I mentioned, which is the Anglican Church reads, written between 325 and 381 which is a response to various heresies, one by Arius, um, that says that Jesus is like God the Father, but not the same, not of the same status. And it's also a rebuttal to the um, Apollinarius, which said that the Logos replaced the soul of the man Jesus so that he was not fully human. So the Nicene Creed set up just to clarify things and make sure the church doesn't go off on wacky direction. There's also the Chalcedonian Creed from 451, which focused on the relationship between Jesus' divine and human natures. Then there's the Athanasian Creed, which goes on for about half an hour if you read it out. And it's clarifying the point how the Trinity all works together. And I did have a youth pastor once that made us read it out in church. So the Apostles' Creed is important because it's a series of statements about God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, about the church and about eternal life. And over the coming weeks and throughout this year, because we'll spread it out a bit, we'll do some leading up to Easter and then we'll have a break and we'll do a few bit more and then a bit more at the end of the year. As we look at these statements, hopefully we will see our faith as part of God's big picture and purposes. So this morning in the Apostles' Creed, I'm going to focus just on the first two words, I believe. And we're going to look at what really is the Apostles' Creed saying when it starts off by saying, I believe. And to kind of get into this thinking, I've chosen the 1 John 1 passage, which I think gives us a good basic kind of clarity about what it means to believe. What, what do we say when we say, I believe? 
So let's look at 1 John 1. You might want to look it in your booklet. Verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, not with the coronavirus days, obviously, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. So first of all, Christians believe what we believe about Jesus is based on what the apostles saw and heard and touched about Jesus, the word of life, who appeared in time and place in history. It did not just appear to them in a dream. It wasn't like somebody was asleep, had a dream, and one day woke up and said, right, I've come up with Christianity. God spoke to me in a dream. No, this is belief in something that happened in history. Belief in the word of life, the source of life. The life of God has been given us through the historical coming of Jesus Christ. And John knows this to to be true because he touched it, he said. Verse 2, the life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. Christians believe in the one who came from eternity and entered into history. And it's a belief on what has been specifically taught to us by the apostles. And the point of this belief, according to John, is unity. It is so that you may have fellowship with us. This is a fellowship not just with people but with God as well. So through believing in these, in, in the basic tenets of Christianity, which we get in the, the Apostles' Creed, we actually form a relationship with God. So Christian belief essentially centres on a scandal, which is that God became a human being, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This is a scandal. Yet, John says, we tell you this stuff, verse 4, to make our joy complete. The byproduct of this belief, as you, as you believe in the basic tenets of Christianity, is joy that comes from knowing God and knowing the people of God. Verse 5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. And we talked about this two weeks ago when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. This imagery of God as light covers the Old and the New Testaments. And when Jesus came, he was the light shining in the darkness. If God is light, this means he is pure, he's perfect, and utterly righteous. It means he reveals to us the truth. It means he shows us our identity as people in the light or in the darkness. So John is saying the man Jesus, who we saw and touched with our own eyes and with our own hands, he was that light. He was that light. Now verse 6 goes on. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So at a basic level, when you say, I believe in these things in the Apostles' Creed, when you say, I believe in Jesus Christ, when you say, I believe in the one true God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, this should lead to a relationship with Jesus. It should lead to us walking in the light. If we we say we are Christians in a relationship with Jesus and the wider church community but walk in darkness, then we lie and we're not really Christians at all. 
He expects, that is John expects Christians to show love to one, love to one another and love towards God. And so this shows us the difference between knowing about and true belief in that sense that we say in the Apostles' Creed. Because you can know about Jesus, you can know about theology and not believe in the sense that the Apostles' Creed is talking about. In, in James chapter 2, verse 19, James writes, You believe that there is one God? Good! Even the demons believe that and shudder. There are lots of nominal believers in God, but the I believe of the Apostles' Creed is the faith that Christians are called to, is one which leads to walking in the light. It leads to putting our faith in action. One theologian says it this way, It is a good thing to possess an accurate theology, but it is unsatisfactory unless that good theology also possesses us. C.S. Lewis uh, famously warned people thinking about becoming Bible teachers. He said, you know, it's great to become a Bible teacher and I recommend it, but I warn you that when you draw closer, when you get to know the Bible really, really well, things that are truly precious can become sort of commonplace and you can start to take it for, for granted. And you do meet theologians and people who are experts at the Bible but just don't, don't live it out. You've got to live your faith out. Now, you might be thinking, nobody completely lives their faith. I don't, I don't live my faith completely out. Is my faith legitimate if I believe in Jesus, if I say I believe in the Apostles' Creed sense and sin at the same time? Well, John deals with that question by saying, of course you're going to sin, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What matters is not that you are perfect, but that you live as if Jesus is perfect and realise that he is your saviour. That's what it means to say, I believe in the Apostles' Creed. It's to say, Jesus is the saviour, not me. This means when you sin, you confess your sins. Knowing, look at verse 9, that he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In fact, verse 10 says, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Now, if you're considering putting your trust in Jesus, but you are having trouble believing 100% of everything of what the Bible claims, 100% of what is in the Apostles' Creed, you might have trouble with bits of it. Should you become a Christian still? Or do you have to have everything worked out first? Well, the first answer is no, you don't have to have everything worked out first. No one does. And in fact, all Christians spend their whole lives um, and you're doing it right now, whether you realise it or not, deconstructing and reconstructing their faith. So they have a faith that they're, they're given at one point by God, in, whether they're children or teenagers or adults. And then from that point onwards, they're deconstructing and reconstructing. What I mean is, as you live your life, you go, well, now I've got to make sense of my faith one more time. How, what do I think about all of this stuff, given that I'm now an older person or given now that I have children or given now that I am a sick person or given now that I'm a wealthy person? I didn't expect that. What do I think about all of this? What do I think about uh, all of what I'm saying in the Apostles' Creed in my, or what I read in the Bible, given that the coronavirus is spreading around the world? What do I think about God? And so you deconstruct and then you reconstruct again. And hopefully as you reconstruct, 
You use the tools God has given us, like the scriptures, like our creeds, uh, like the people of God in the church. We reconstruct. And because of this process that we're constantly going through, through our whole lives, you never have everything completely worked out. In fact, you definitely won't have everything worked out when you die. And you'll get to heaven, and if you're a Christian, and you'll, you'll look at Jesus and you'll, and, and you'll go, oh, I did not understand, but now I understand. Christians spend their whole lives discovering their faith. What I recommend, though, is that you don't just dismiss your concerns, but nor do you let them be a blocker for you. Some people just get so worked up over this one thing they just can't work out. What you need to do as a Christian is to hold your doubts lightly. Don't dismiss them altogether. Just acknowledge that they exist. Tell people it's fine. You know, don't think that being a Christian or coming to church means you can't say, I doubt things. That's not true. Talk about them with your Christian friends. Buy a book. Pray and ask God to help you. Having doubts is fine. Doubt is the inevitable flip side of faith. The writer of the Hebrews says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And because we do not see, we have doubts. Nevertheless, we can still live as Christians, even with doubts. I love what the, ta- the psalmist says, which is, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 38 verse 14. To taste is to trust. A Christian disciple is one who puts their trust on a daily basis in Jesus Christ. The I believe of the Apostles' Creed is saying, I trust these things to be true. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Imagine you go to a French restaurant and you read the menu and it says, special for today, escargot with garlic and parsley butter. And you think to yourself, I've always wondered what snails taste like. But you feel a bit weird about the whole thing, being an Australian. It looks a bit questionable, snails, being in the dirt. But the waiter tells you, it tastes magnificent. This is the best escargot outside of Paris. And you, you doubt the waiter a little bit because you think to yourself, oh, isn't it their job just to sell us the, the food on the menu here? On the other hand, this is a reputable restaurant, you think. So you order the dish, escargot, with garlic and parsley butter. And you eat the dish and you discover that it is magnificent. The garlic and parsley butter melt in your mouth and the snails run down the back of your throat like the oysters of the earth. What a delicacy. You've tasted and seen that it is good. And this is the claim of the psalmist. Think of me as the waiter. I'm telling you the dishes at this restaurant are to die for. Go for it. Now, I'm not simply suggesting that you deal with your doubts with blind faith. I'm I'm suggesting something a lot more than that. I'm suggesting that in your faith, you step towards the mystery of God. As you say in the Apostles' Creed that you believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just stop and think for a second. One God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, suddenly you're standing in front of a mystery. 
there. You can't decipher that with logic. You can explore it and read it and be inspired by what that means, one God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. There's so much you can look at. But you will never fully grasp it like a maths puzzle. Don't try. When you say you believe in Jesus Christ, who died and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, that is a mystery as well. You don't really know how he rose from the dead, not in a scientific sense. You don't really know how the ascension worked in a scientific sense. There are things there that we are told that are a mystery. When you say you believe in eternal life, you don't really know. Uh, You can't write it all down in an essay and explain 100% this is what eternal life looks like, everyone. It's a mystery. But it's a mystery which you're saying you're putting your trust in. And it's, it's not just based on random spiritual words. As we go back to the start of 1 John 1, there's a lot that God has revealed to us in the Bible. There's a lot that Jesus has showed the apostles in the flesh. How God saved the world through Jesus. How the end of time will look, as was shown in the book of Revelation. So as we go through the Apostles' Creed series, we will find ourselves walking through and wrestling with these doctrines. We will face the mystery of God over and over and over again. We may find ourselves doubting. As theologian Karl Barth says, we may find ourselves swaying and staggering between yes and no. Whether from spiritual attack, this can happen to Christians, or from disunity in the church. I'm not suggesting we're going to have that, but that can happen in the wider church. Personal sin or your own self-righteousness, all these things can cause you to be kind of, oh, what do I really think? And you can be knocked over. And if this is the case, that's the normal Christian life in some sense, we must persist through the doubt and resist temptation, realising that what our beliefs are, are based on are coming from God and are being refined in us. We live in strange days. We live in busy days. We live in virus days, in politically polarised days. And we need to work together as a congregation as we groan in hope, waiting for Jesus. We need to hold on and trust that while we worship a God who says no to sin, that he says a resounding yes to salvation. Let me pray for us. Lord God, We thank you uh, for the hard work that was put into these creeds over centuries by the early Christians that are given to us as a gift to help us to live out our faith, to hold closely to the truth. We pray that as we go through this series that you will inspire us with your truth. Amen.